You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join Pastor Ryan now. Luke chapter 5, continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to look at verses 12 to 32 this morning. How many, if I asked you, would, would be able to answer this question? The theme of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is, and fill in the blank. How many of you would be able to answer? Don't raise your hand, but just think about that in your mind. What would you answer? The theme of the Bible, one word is, it's redemption. From Genesis to Revelation, one unfolding story. And the reason there's so much confusion about the Bible is because we think it's like this just absolute mix mash of books and literature thrown together that really have no point. That it's just a collection of ancient writings with no continuity. And yet there is continuity in the Bible from the very beginning all the way through. From the very beginning when Adam and Eve were created. I mean, things were going well. It was awesome. They were in a garden. It was lush. It was paradise. You, you, you start off reading the Bible and it's like, man, this is amazing. But it only takes two pages and they've absolutely screwed the whole thing up. Does that ever strike you funny? It's like your life. It's like my life. You know, two pages in, the thing is destroyed. It, it's like when your kids get a gift for Christmas and, you know, Carson got a big old pirate ship for Christmas this year. And it's got a million pieces. And as he's opening it, I hate to be a pessimist, but I'm thinking, yeah, that thing's broke tomorrow. The pieces are lost. The, it's going to be busted. The dog's going to chew it to pieces. I mean, it's it just, it's going to be destroyed by tomorrow. And that's kind of like our life. It's kind of like the Bible. Two pages in, it's totally screwed up. And then you keep reading. And you see Adam and Eve, and, and now they're hiding in the garden and, and they're aware of their nakedness. Have you ever thought, how did that go down? They're aware of their nakedness. All of a sudden, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm naked. You know, and get some fig leaves and sew them together. And, and they're ashamed. And, and, and God's pretending like he doesn't know where they're at. And it's this crazy scene. And then God takes their self-righteousness, which was the fig leaves they sewed together. And he gives them his righteousness, pointing them to Jesus through the badger skins. The, the skins of the animals that, that were offered for them. And from the very beginning, we see that the theme of the Bible is about redemption. It's about forgiveness. It's about the fact that man is a sinner. That mankind has separated itself from God. And you might think, you know, Adam, why did you botch it all up for us? If, if you would have just kept away from the one stinking tree, we'd all be good. And the thing is, if you were Adam or if you were Eve, you would have done the same thing. We're all in the same boat. And the Bible's theme is that we are separated from God, but that Jesus came and all of the sacrifices and the priestly system in the Old Testament were pointing us to Jesus. And that's what we want to do as we open the word, is we want to point you to Jesus. Because it's all about Jesus, and it's all about his plan of redemption. See, every religious figure in history who has founded a religion came and said, I'm a prophet, come to help you find God. But Jesus said, I am God, come to find you. There's a big difference. It's why Christianity is separate and distinct from every religion, and it's why we have hope. And we can point people to that hope. And it's only found in Jesus. 
And Jesus is on every page of the Bible. Even though it's 66 books written by 40 different authors over a few millennia, written on different continents and different cultures by people that thought differently and talked differently, spoke different languages, it's one unfolding story. And you need to know that. And that's what Art in his class, Understanding Your Bible, is going to give us as the tools to unlock that. And the theme of the Gospel of Luke is much the same as the theme of the entire Bible, and that is of redemption. As you see there in the graphic, the, the theme verse of the Gospel of Luke is 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And in our passage this morning, we see Jesus involved in three different situations, each of which point us to a different aspect of God's plan of redemption. And the first thing is found in verses 12 to 16, and that is that Jesus is willing to forgive sins. Let's read that together. And it happened when he was in a certain city that, behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus, and he fell on his face and begged him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then he put out his hand, that is, Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. However, the report went around concerning him all the more, and a great multitude came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. And so Jesus is now fully thrust into his earthly ministry. We, we've, we've seen him last week with the miracle of the great catch of fish and him calling these four disciples, Andrew and Peter and James and John, into a life of complete surrender and following him and serving him. And they left everything. They forsook all and they followed him. And so now it doesn't tell us where Jesus is, but he's continuing to go and to minister. And he's in a certain city, probably in the outskirts of the city because he runs in to a leper. Not just any leper, not a leper who was just beginning to have leprosy, but a full-on leper, a guy who would have been an outcast, who would have been ostracized and banished to a leper colony to die. Leprosy was a disease that ravaged your whole body. It's a skin disease. It, it comes in various types of illnesses. Today, it's referred to as Hansen's disease because a gentleman by the name of Hansen came up with a way to stave off the results of leprosy and the symptoms of it. You, you can't really cure it. And they understood that it couldn't be cured. It could only be healed. And that's why they weren't super politically correct back then. That's why they would banish them. It was like, look, you have leprosy. You are contagious. It's nasty. We don't want to have anything to do with it. And so you're out. And the only thing we can really even relate to in terms of this kind of an illness would be AIDS. And maybe not so much today because there is medication that is at least staving off the, 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 the long-term symptoms of it. But back maybe 20 years ago, you remember when, when AIDS was becoming an epidemic. 
in, in this country, and, and people were paranoid about it. And, and you, there was a lot of ignorance about it, and, and people thought you could get it by shaking hands or by getting a little bit of uh, spit or somebody breathing on you, and you didn't want to have anything to do with it. And so people were kind of banished. Even the church didn't know how to deal with the AIDS issue. And, and so we can maybe relate it to that. But here's this guy. He would have been forsaken by his friends and family. He wouldn't have been able to have a job. He would have been all alone. And it says his body was full of leprosy. It's completely taken over his body. And he's only got one last option. He's tried everything, I'm sure. One last option. He's heard about this Galilean preacher, this, this rabbi from Nazareth, this carpenter turned rabbi, and he's, he's drawn to him, and he, he sees that he's coming to his town. He hears about this, and, and he rushes out to meet him, taking the risk of being turned away, of having Jesus say to him, don't touch me, I don't want to have anything to do with you, of being rejected once again. But he, he takes a risk, and he falls at Jesus' feet, and he says, Lord, if you are willing you can make me clean. He didn't question his ability. He only questioned his willingness. And I think in some senses that this guy understood that God is not at our beck and call to do as we please and as we wish. That we need to ask God that his will would be accomplished in our life. And he, he comes to Jesus and Jesus is so willing, probably more willing than this guy ever could have imagined. And Jesus puts out his hand. He touches him. Something that no one else was willing to do. Nobody else wants to have anything to do with this guy. And Jesus touches him. He says, I'm, a, I'm willing. Be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy leaves him. Now this has a, a twofold application. Certainly that Jesus is able to heal leprosy. And that Jesus can heal any sickness and any disease. But what I want us to notice is that this is a picture of the fact that Jesus is willing to forgive sins. Because if you know anything about leprosy in the Bible, you know that it's always a picture of sin. They have similarities, leprosy and sin. Leprosy ravages and destroys your life, but it takes time to do it. It slowly and surely destroys you, just like sin does. Leprosy also leaves the person numb and unaware often of the destruction that's taking place because it creates numbness, but at the same time, it's eating your flesh and your bone and it would be very common for people with leprosy to have digits fall off, to have limbs fall off, to have their noses eaten away so that you're actually looking into the inner parts of their face and skull it would disfigure a person. And they were often unaware of it. In fact, many times lepers would have rodents and rats gnawing at them in the nighttime while they're sleeping and they wouldn't know it. And you'd wake up and be like, oh, my thumb's gone. You know, and see a little rodent scurrying off with it. And that, that wasn't uncommon at all. And so like sin, leprosy makes you numb and unaware of its impact and repercussions. And, and maybe in your own life, maybe you've seen people who are just involved in massive amounts of sin and stupidity. 
And they're not aware of the destruction it's causing. They're not aware of the fact that they've drunk themselves into oblivion. They're not aware of what drugs have done to them. And you see these people who are just destroyed by meth. And it's almost as if they're not aware of the destructiveness of it. You see people who have destroyed their marriages and their children because of their sexual addictions. And it started off at a young age in junior high or high school. And oh, we're just going to mess around. We're just going to experiment. I mean, we're young. But then that pattern of sin and unfaithfulness carries with you. And it brings sexually transmitted diseases. And it brings devastation. And it brings unwanted pregnancies. And it brings poverty and all of the other things that, that it brings with it. But nobody ever tells you that, do they, in the midst of it. I remember friends in high school who wanted to party and I would say, you know what no one's telling you? No one's telling you that right now you look cool with that bottle of beer. But what no one's telling you is that 25 years from now, when you're 40 and you're living in a one-bedroom apartment and your kids don't want to have anything to do with you, and you're an alcoholic, yeah, it's not cool anymore. You know what no one's telling you about that little experiment with drugs? Is that it's going to ruin and ravage your life. And, and that's much like leprosy, is the effects of it leave the person unaware so often. And so there's a picture here of Jesus' willingness to forgive sins. And another thing that leprosy did is that it isolated people. It ostracized them, and that's what our sin does. It separates us from God. But Jesus is showing us that he's willing to go to the sinner and to reach out and to touch our lives and to forgive our sins. And that Jesus' concern is for the total outcast. And that ought to be our concern as followers of Jesus. is for the total outcast. is for the people that no one else wants anything to do with. People that have ruined their lives. This was the purpose of Jesus' coming, to seek and to save that which is lost. He's willing. So often we, we come to God thinking that we have to overcome some kind of reluctance on his part. But God isn't reluctant. He's willing. Like we see with Jesus, there was no reluctance. The man recognized his need and Jesus met his need. We don't need to overcome God's reluctance. We simply need to seize upon his willingness. He's willing. Jesus is willing to forgive sins. Well, the second thing I want us to see in our text is found in verses 17 to 26. And that is that Jesus has the power to forgive sins. Not only is Jesus willing, but he has the power. And there is a big difference, isn't there? Jesus has the power to forgive sins. Now, it happened on a certain day as he was teaching, that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And notice this, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. That's an amazing phrase. The power of the Lord was present to heal and to minister to them as well, but their hearts were hardened to it. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and led him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. 
And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately, he rose up before them, took what he had been lying on and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed. And they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, we have seen strange things today. And so here's these religious leaders. They're sitting around. They're waiting for for something to accuse Jesus of. The very beginning of Jesus' ministry, these religious leaders already don't like him. And they're listening, but their hearts are hard. And behold, it says a man was brought on a bed, a paralyzed man. And his buddies tried to get him into the house, but they couldn't because it was packed. And I mean, I don't know about you, but if I'm bringing my buddy and I've toted him all the way down here on a, on a bed, I'm probably going to be like, you know what, we'll come back tomorrow. I mean, you're not going anywhere, you know. It's not going to get any better. You'll, you've been this way long long enough, you know, it's not going to hurt. One more night, what's the big deal? But these guys are super persistent. And they go up on the roof, and they begin to dig through the thatch and the grass and, and the, the mud and the straw, that which they would have made roofs out of at that time. And you can picture the scene. Jesus is teaching in the house. It's packed. It's probably hot in there. And all of a sudden, Little pieces start falling from the ceiling. Can you imagine? You're sitting here and, and little pieces of drywall start falling. And then nails and lumber and, and just big sheets of drywall and dust start collapsing into the room. You're probably not going to be paying attention to what I'm saying anymore. I'm sure their, their attention was turned to the, to the roof. And we've all been in situations where there's distractions going on around you in church. And, and it is amazing to me. That for some reason, you guys don't think that I see what you're doing. I don't know why that is. Because I'm looking at all of you. I see everything. See what you're doing. You know, when you're talking or when you're texting somebody or, you know, you close your Bible like halfway through the study and it's like, I'm out. You know, he lost me. And sometimes I'll think that somebody is like ready to kill me. I'm like afraid for my life due to your facial expressions. I'm thinking like I ought to have one of those Barack Obama, you know, bulletproof pulpits. And I'm just thinking like, wow, this person is hot, right? Not like in the beautiful sense of the word, but like this person's ticked. And and then afterward, they'll come up and they'll be like, oh, that was the most amazing Bible study I've ever heard. And I'll be like, really? You ought to tell your face because I thought for sure you were going to kill me. You know, and just just so angry looking, you know. But I say all that to say I see everything that you're doing. So know that. Not when you're not here. Not claiming to be God or something. That would be weird. But when you're sitting here, I can see what you're doing. 
And it's just, it, it can be distracting. And I'm sure they were super distracted as stuff's falling through. And then all of a sudden, here's this guy being lowered through the roof. Of all things that you expect to see when you go to a Bible study, this isn't one of them. And so now they're like, okay, well, here's a paralyzed dude. And Jesus heals people. So Jesus is going to heal this guy. But what does Jesus say? He always keeps you on your toes. If you've been walking with Jesus for any time, you know that. He doesn't do what you expect. What they expect? Rise up and walk, man. Be healed. Whatever Jesus is going to say. What does he say to them? He sees their faith. And, and let's be honest, it took more faith for the buddies to bring the guy than it did for the guy on the bed. The guy on the bed's not exercising a lot of faith. He's not doing a lot of exercising of any kind. He can't do anything, Right? It's the guys that are bringing him that are actually displaying faith. They're the ones that had to lug this guy across town, dig through a roof, lower him down. And Jesus sees their faith. And he says to him, not be healed, but man, your sins are forgiven you. That's not what they expected. And I'm sure that as these guys are lowering whatever kind of pulley system they had, they're probably thinking, no, that's not what we brought him here for. What kind of sin do you think the guy does, Jesus? He's paralyzed. He's not a bad guy. He needs to be healed. But Jesus recognized and got to the heart of the issue. And I don't know, maybe you have begun coming to church. Maybe you're new here because your marriage is falling apart. And you think, you know what? That's my greatest need. Jesus, fix my marriage. And it's like you're lowering down your marriage into the midst and Jesus is going to heal your marriage. You're certain of it. But Jesus is speaking to you differently. And you're like, that's not what I expected. Or maybe your kids are just going nuts and, and you need help. And it's like, you know what? I got to get, get to church. I got to get my kids in church. They're going nuts. They're going to be in prison. They're only four. I just know it. Or maybe with the economy, you lost your job or maybe one or, or both of of you and your spouse have lost jobs. You've had to make serious budget cuts. You're losing your home. And, and you think, Jesus, I, I got to come to church. You got to take care of my finances. And you're lowering your, lowering your finances down to Jesus. And Jesus is speaking to you in a different way than what you expected him to say. And what Jesus wants you to know is that he has power to forgive your sins. He's not only willing, but he's able. He's powerful enough. And not that he doesn't care about your other needs and circumstances. And not that we don't care as a church about your marriage or your children or your finances or your health. But Jesus recognizes what your greatest need is. And he wants to meet that. Your greatest need is forgiveness. Is to be redeemed by God. The Bible says that your sins have separated you from God. And that the wages of your sin is death. And that you are on a collision course with the judgment of God. But Jesus came. He who knew no sin was made to be sin with your sin that you might become the righteousness of God in him. Martin Luther, the great reformer, called it the great exchange. The great exchange. I used to trade baseball cards all the time. And that's a trade that you're looking for. You give Jesus your sin, he gives you his righteousness. It's a pretty good deal. And that's what he wants to do. And then you say, Jesus... I've been bought with a price. My life is yours. 
Do with me as you please. If you want to heal my marriage, Lord, then heal my marriage. Because you're going to have to do a miracle, Lord, because I've driven that sucker into the ground. But he might not. It might be beyond what Jesus even wills to do. There, there may be too much damage, too much water under the bridge. I'm not saying he can't heal anything. But if you're coming to Jesus simply for him to fix your marriage or to heal you or to put money into your bank account, you're coming for the wrong reasons. Jesus wants to meet your greatest need, and that's forgiving your sins. And he has the power to do that. Not only the willingness, but the power. See, I'm willing to do a lot of things, but I don't have the power to do most. If I saw you broken down on the side of the road with your hood up, steam billowing out, I pull over and I say, wow, you got a problem. I'm willing to help. But guess what? I don't have a clue what I'm doing. Sorry. I'm willing. And you and I could stand there for like a half an hour looking at it. It's like, man, this is a problem. There's oil shooting around everywhere. There's steam. There's smoke. This is a problem. Do you know you have a problem? I'm willing to help, but I don't have a clue. You want me to call a tow truck? You want me to get a mechanic? See, I'm willing, but I'm powerless to do anything for you. But Jesus is not only willing, he's able. And see, that's really what I am as a pastor, is I just kind of come alongside of you to help you to assess your problem, really to point out the obvious. It's like, hey, bro, your life is screwed up. Yeah, thanks, I knew that already. Or, hey, pastor, do you know that my life is just totally messed up? Yeah, I can see that. And it's kind of like you and I standing over the hood looking in to the engine. And all I can do is point you to Jesus. And that's why it's always funny when people come in for counseling. Because I think I say things to them they don't expect me to say, which probably doesn't surprise you, right? And, and people often routinely say to me, I... I've never heard that before. I went to counseling for years and paid big money to a psychologist and they never said this. And I'll always say to them, the reason is simple. They want you to come back. They have motivation for you to keep coming. So they're not going to give you the whole story. It's kind of like a chiropractor, right? They're not going to fix you completely. They want you to come back the next week. And and I say to them, look, these psychologists and, and these These counselors, God bless them. But it's a business oftentimes. They want you to come back. And I don't mean to be harsh, but I don't care if you come back. I want you to know the truth. I have motivation for you not to come back because I've got other things to do. They have no motivation for you not to come back. In fact, their motivation is completely for you to come back. See, and I'm speaking in tongue in cheek. But that's why I'm just going to tell you straight up. Man, you got a problem. You need Jesus. I'm going to point you to the only source of power to help you. Jesus not only has the willingness to forgive, but the power, the authority. The scribes and the Pharisees are ticked off at this point. How can you say, man, your sins are forgiven you? Who do you think you are? That's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right on. They're smarter than we thought. But they miss it. You know how sometimes something's so obvious that you miss it? The Pharisees. This was so obvious. No one can forgive sins but God alone. Yeah, I'm God. Jesus perceived their thoughts. 
And he asks them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? And he gives them a little scenario. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you or to say, rise up and walk? Which is easier to say? This is a confusing verse for a lot of people. It's not confusing. Jesus is saying something very simple. It's clearly easier to say to somebody, your sins are forgiven you. Because I've got no way to be proven wrong. Right? Jesus could say that. Hey, sins are forgiven you. But they're all up in arms about that. Jesus says, but that you might know that I have the power to actually do that. I'll say to this man, rise up and walk. See, because that can be proven wrong. That's risky. It's way easier to say to somebody, hey, your sins are forgiven you, than a guy who's paralyzed to ask him to get up and walk out. That's risky. And so Jesus was showing them that he had the power to forgive sins by healing the man. And all of the miracles that Jesus did were simply to ratify and to substantiate who he was. And so if Jesus does do a miracle in your marriage, if Jesus does heal you physically, if Jesus does bless you financially, it's only to show you that he has the power to do something even greater, to meet your greatest need, which is to forgive your sins. The last thing I want us to to look at is found in verses 27 to 32, and that is that Jesus calls sinners to repent. We've seen that Jesus is willing to forgive sins and that Jesus calls And has the power to forgive sins. But now we see that Jesus calls sinners, you and I, to repentance. To turn from our rebellion toward God. And it might shock you a little bit this morning as to what exactly rebellion toward God is. You might think that it's all the dirty stuff. It's all the stuff in the darkness. It's it's the stuff we've talked about this morning. It's, It's illicit sex. It's drugs. It's alcoholism. It's filthy language. It's pornography. Clearly those things are sin. But is that the only sin? Is that what makes a sinner? Is it, is it the, the people in the darkest places of society? See, we have our idea of what a sinner is, don't we? I want you to keep that in mind as we read this text and talk about it. 27 to 32. After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. Now, if you know anything about tax collectors, you know they were hated in this culture. Because the Roman government was, was over the nation of Israel. Israel was a colony, and, and Rome was over them. And so they would tax the people. And basically what they would do is they would tell the tax collectors, look, we want to get X amount of dollars out of every person. Whatever you can raise, steal, above and beyond that is yours to keep. Talk about setting something up to be corrupt, Right? So, the tax collector goes to the door. Yeah, you are going to owe $10 to the Roman government, but you're also going to owe $10 to me, so I need $20. And if you didn't do it, you'd get hauled off to jail. And they could just arbitrarily say whatever number they wanted. And so this is Levi. This is his life. He's a crook. He's a fraud. He's been taking money from families They can barely put food on the table for their kids. This is a nasty guy. Jesus comes by and Jesus says, you know what? I love nasty dudes. I love the most marginalized. I love the people that everybody else hates. Why don't you come and follow me and be one of my disciples? Seriously? This is who you're calling? 
First, some rough and tough fishermen. Now, a tax collector who everyone hates. This isn't a great church planting team. You know, they, they have theories and, and ideas of, of the kind of people that you want to go into a city to plant a church with. Well, I don't think this would have fit the bill. Levi is a tax collector. He's hated. He, he would have not encouraged people to come to seek Jesus. He would have repelled people from Jesus. So Levi left all, rose up, and followed Jesus. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with him. So not only is Levi there, but he's invited all of his marginalized buddies. All of those that everyone can't stand. They're all there in the house. And a bunch of other sinners with him. Probably prostitutes and people who, who were involved in, in idol worship and paganism. Alcoholics, drug addicts, perverts. These were the people that were invited to this feast. It's the kind of church that we have and that I want to have. People that recognize they're sinners. And the scribes and Pharisees complained, grumbled against Jesus and his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why would you invite sinners to come? And how often do people say that in the church? So-and-so goes to your church? Oh, I'm not going to go there. That guy's a jerk. Seriously? You have sinners in your church? Oh, I'm too good for that. See, and we'd never come out and say that, but that's the kind of mentality that Christian people get into. The people that have been raised in the church get into. And rather than seeing themselves as a Pharisee, they're very good at condemning the Pharisees without realizing that they are one. And see, if you're reading the Bible and only identifying with the heroes of the Bible, you're reading it wrong. It's like, oh yeah, I love Abraham and Daniel, Joseph, Jesus. Those are my guys. I'm a lot like those guys. It's like, no, I'm a lot like David and his stupidity, his terrible decisions. I'm a lot like Jezebel. My heart's hard. I don't like people that much. That, that's, that's what we need to do. We need to read the Bible with a different kind of lens. And the Pharisees didn't get that. And some of you have fallen into that trap as well. You got sinners in your church? See, we all have a level of what's acceptable to us, often what we've done ourselves. And, and it's like, yeah, that, that's okay, but not this. See, and we've got that level. And we've got to let Jesus break that. And we have to see that all sin is equal in God's eyes. The most nasty dirty sin that you can think of. Those are the kind of people that Jesus wants to embrace and that he's calling to himself to repent. And Jesus answered and said to them, I mean, they just set Jesus up big time. Talk about throwing a meatball to Jesus. Jesus answered and said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, what they didn't quite recognize is that Jesus was indicting all of them, but just saying, you're too ignorant to see it. And see, Jesus calls sinners, which is all of us, but only some of us recognize that we're sinners. It's much like a familiar story found in Luke's gospel in chapter 15, a story that's wrongly titled the prodigal son. You guys are familiar with that, right? We've probably all called it the prodigal son. And it's always focused 
on the younger brother. He's the prodigal son. The younger brother who said to his father, I hate you. I don't care if you die. In fact, I wish you were dead because I want your stuff now. Give me your stuff. I want your money. And then he went and blew it. He went and blew it on prostitutes and strip clubs and cocaine and fast living. That's what he did. He partied. He partied until it was all gone. And then he came back and he felt like a miserable failure and he expected his father to shun him. He was just hoping that maybe, just maybe, he could become a servant in his father's house because things had gotten so bad that he was living in a pigsty eating the pig slop. And he was just hoping maybe, maybe my father will allow me to be a slave so I can eat because my father's slaves are eating better than I am. And he came back and his father was there to greet him, which tells us that the father was going out there every single day to meet his son. And he saw him coming from a long way off and he went and he rushed to him and he embraced him and he said, let's throw a party. And he put a, the best robe and a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. He said, kill the fatted calf. And they're throwing a party. And I mean, they are partying like it's 1999. They are having a good old time. And all of a sudden, the father looks around. Where's my older son? Why isn't he in here? And he leaves the party. He goes out and he finds him. And his older son's ticked. Are you kidding me? That idiot that blew all of our money? He wanted to say my. Oh, he wanted to say my money. You haven't even killed a goat for me. And, and you killed the fatted calf for that sinner? I refuse to go in. I'm too good to go in. I won't go in. And see, the, the party, the... The celebration was a picture of salvation. The younger son, he went in and he freely received of the grace of God. But the older son, he said, I won't associate with him. I'm too good for that. I've worked hard all these years. I've worked myself to the bone for you. You see, what we fail to recognize is that the younger son and the older son were exactly the same. They both wanted the same thing. They wanted their father's stuff. They just went about it a different way. The younger son said, I don't care if you're dead, dad. Just give it all to me. I, I'm free to do what I want. I, I'm free to live the way I want to live. I'm going to party hard. And many people live that way. They don't want to be shackled to God. They don't want to be shackled to a set of morals. They want to do what they want to do. And that is sin and that's rebellion. But it's our misconception that that's the only kind of rebellion. The story should be called the story of the two lost sons. In fact, it's really a story of one lost son who is found and another lost son who goes away to judgment. And guess who goes away to judgment? The older son who had it all together. He was good. He was moral. He had worked hard. And some of you are in that place. You've been in the church a long time. And you've worked hard. And you're a good person in your mind. And then trials come into your life. And difficulties. And you're upset with God. God, I've worked hard. I deserve better than this. And God says, you don't deserve anything. You deserve hell. You're not a good person. In fact, you're demonstrating to me right now that you're in rebellion to me. That you don't love me. You love what I have to offer you. Brings a whole new twist on that story, doesn't it? That whole section that Jesus is speaking there of the lost things. 
the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost sons. It was all to illustrate to the religious leaders, the good people, the ones that had their act together, the church people, the ones that say, you've got sinners in your church. It was all to show them that Jesus had in fact turned his back on them and had went to find sinners. We always think that the story of the hundred sheep, one gets lost and he leaves the 99. Oh, he leaves the 99 little fluffy ones there. He'll come back to them. Jesus doesn't say that. He says, I go to find the one. That's the one I went to seek because that's the one that realizes they need me. And the 99 don't. And he was telling the religious leaders, I've turned my back on you. And man, it's going to be a scary day for many, many people who lived morally, who went to church, who gave money. And they're going to hear in that day, not well done, but depart from me. I never knew you. What do you mean you never knew me? I'm a good person. Exactly. That's your problem. You're in rebellion to me. Those who are well have no need of a physician. Do you think you're well? You're in a really, really scary place. But those who are sick, do you recognize your sickness today? Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, the self-righteous, the older brothers. I've got no use for them, but sinners. Sinners like the younger brother that had done so many despicable things, but the father went and he wrapped his arms around him and he loved him and he threw a party for him. And that's what Jesus wants to do for you. Will you let him? You got to repent. You got to turn from it. You got to turn from one of the two ways that you're rebelling against God. One is by living in complete freedom to do what you want to do. I don't need God. The younger brother, the tax collectors here, the prostitutes, those that Jesus was calling to himself. Or the pharisaical, older brother, the one that doesn't think they need it. Two ways to rebel against God. It brings you on a completely different lifestyle, a completely different course. In, in the world's eyes, one will bring respect and the other will bring disdain. But that's not the point. The point is, what does God think? And God wants you to turn today from your rebellion, however you're rebelling against him. Even if you've committed your life to him, but you've turned from that. You can turn back to him today. Maybe you've gotten into a Pharisee mindset and you think you're better than others. And there's sins that you think, I would never do that. That is disgusting. Lord, thank you that you didn't make me like that person. God wants to strip that from us, you guys, so that we can truly reach out to this community, to the marginalized, into the deepest, darkest, nastiest, gnarliest places. Are you ready to do it? I want to do it. I hope you are. If you don't know Jesus today, turn to him. Give your life to him today. Let's stand together. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.